Go ahead and grab a seat and grab your Bible and turn with me in your Bible. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is where we'll camp out here in just a moment. But first, to all of our guests, welcome. My name is Josh. I'm one of the teachers, one of the ministers here at the Clear Creek Church of Christ. And we are just so glad that you're with us today. Um, To those who are in the cafe or overflow, welcome. Glad you're here. As well as those who are joining us online, wherever you're coming in from, we just want you to know that you're welcome. And that if you are in the Chattanooga area, we would love to get to know you better. Because this is, although not a perfect church because not one of us is perfect. Can I get an amen? But we know a perfect Savior, amen? And so we'd love just to get to know you as well. Now, as you're turning to first, excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to take just a real quick uh, pop quiz. And here's why. We're in a series called The Cost of Not. And we all know that everything does have a cost. Have you noticed this? I've yet to find anything that doesn't cost something. Maybe it's not monetary. Maybe it's uh, emotional cost. How many of you have these wonderful little things called children? Any of you know the emotional cost to having kids? What about this one? There is a time cost to things as well. I just repeat myself. How many of you have little things called children? And we'll just kind of keep going and going. But, you know, there's all sorts of things that cost something. And so let's just do a real quick. It's a four-question pop quiz multiple choice, but let's just kind of uh, have a little fun together and look at a few things here. So I'm going to invite you to, uh, in just a moment, shout out the answer to each one of these. There is no prize other than to be able to look down on those who get fewer answers than yourself, because our goal at Clear Creek is to create an air of superiority over absolutely nothing. Okay. So here's the first question. That was a joke if you're new here. Okay. Just, that is not true. (laughs) I like my job. Don't fire me. Here's the first one. What is the median price of a home in Chattanooga? Now, this is all of Chattanooga, not just Hickson, not just uh, East Brainerd, not just Saudi, but all of Chattanooga. If you were to sort of average it out. Now, here we go. You got three options here. First one, 132,000, B, 148, or C, 164. What do you think? And the answer is B. How many of you got that one right? Let's see. Don't you feel smug and superior already? This is good. Here's the second one. What is the average cost of a used car in America? Not just Chattanooga, but all of the United States. We got 11,000, 14,000, 17,000. What do you got? A, B, or C? And the correct answer is C. If you were to buy an average used car right now somewhere in America, now maybe not here, but you've got to take into account L.A., New York, other places where money evidently grows on trees, it's $17,000. There's a cost to it. Let's see. How about this one? What is the average monthly cell phone bill in America for one line? So if you're just paying one line, not a family one, not something like that, but just for one line, what is the average monthly cell phone bill? Is it $72? $80 or $94? A, B, or C? What do you got? And the answer is? B. Oh, now we're getting into it. Okay. By the way, how many of you gotten all three so far? Okay. 
Here's the last one. What is the average cost of raising a child? Some of you are going too much, way too much. I'm going to have to sell bodily organs, right? All right, so is it A, $233,610, B, $400,170, or C, $500,980? A, B, or C? Would it surprise you to know that the answer is A? Now, this is without college. Now, here's the bottom line. Whether you're buying a bottle of ketchup or buying a home, everything costs something. And wise Christ followers count the cost before they buy. But did you know, there are some things that are so valuable, so important, so essential For you being who God has created you to be, that the cost is far greater for you not to do, believe, or think a certain way. And so we're in a series called The Cost of Not, because while there is a cost to doing something, there is also a cost to not doing certain things. How many of you, don't raise your hand, how many of you used to be slightly skinnier back in high school than you are today? Don't raise your hand, don't, don't, no, 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 no no shame here. There is a cost to what we eat, correct? There's a cost to not exercising. There's a cost to not saving. There's a cost to not forgiving. There is a cost to so many things. But today I want us to dig down into the cost of not giving. Now, I know as soon as I say the word giving, some people in here are going to go, oh, great. The church just wants my money. Let me debunk that real fast. The Clear Creek Church of Christ has been around for about 85, 86 years, a lot longer than I've been here and I think longer than most of anyone in this room. God raised this church without your money, and he will continue his church without your money. The need here is not that God needs your money, but that to become like God, to become more like our Father in heaven, we give not because God needs it, but because we need to give. There's a great cost to not giving. So I want us to dive into a text from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is, we're only going to read a portion of what is a very long section on giving. In fact, this is the longest section on giving in the entire New Testament. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church in the city of Corinth, which was a major metropolitan city. It was wealthy, it was cultured, it had everything it wanted, and then some. And now Paul is talking to them about the gift of giving. So we're going to begin by looking... At verse 1 and going through verse 9, this is what it says. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace, pay attention to that word, the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing, notice this word, joy, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. 
For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege. Do you hear all these words? Urgent, pleading, privileged of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. Notice the order. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So he urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel, verse 7, but just as you excel in everything, in your faith, in your speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us. Look at this phrase and say this out loud with me. See that you also excel in the grace of giving. See to it that just as you're growing in all these other beautiful ways, see that you do not stunt your growth In this one very important place, verse 8, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we listen in on a conversation that was had thousands of years ago, may you, Holy Spirit, speak to us in this room today that we would not miss the grace that comes with generosity, but that we too would grow and be like the Macedonians, our brothers and sisters who are, even as we speak, enjoying time with you. We pray that we would walk in step and be just like them and ultimately just like Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So here's what's going on. This is the second letter that Paul has written to the Macedonian churches that we have. You say that we have. Yes, this was most likely, probably more like the fourth letter to the Corinthian church, Uh, but it's only the second one that we have a copy of because in the first book or first letter to the Corinthians, he seems to be addressing many of the questions that they have been corresponding about, such as um, how they ought to fellowship one with another, about their sexual activity, about what they ought to do or eat or celebrate, things like that. And he is answering their questions. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he begins this conversation about a collection or an offering that he is asking them to participate in, this church in Corinth, this rich city center. And he's saying, I want you to be a part of what so many other churches around the known world are doing right now. And it was a particular offering for the Christians in Jerusalem. Now, here's what's going on. The Corinthians are predominantly and primarily Gentiles, meaning they are not Jewish. They did not come from the lineage of Abraham. But the Jewish Christians are primarily in the city of Jerusalem. 
At this time, though, there is a great famine in Jerusalem. It has been going on, we think, for about four years. Now, here's the way it worked. There was a drought. The rain had not fallen, and so the crops were increasingly anemic. They were just weak. They weren't growing up well. And so food was becoming very scarce. And as is often the case, when things like this happen... Certain groups take care of their own. So the Romans took care of Romans. There were government-assisted programs and opportunities, ways for people to get assistance who were hungry. If you're Roman, the Romans would take care of you. And the Jews, well, the Jews would take care of their own as well. The synagogue collected money for the purpose of distributing it to the poor, to the needy, to the hungry. And so if you were Roman, you were in good shape. If you were Jewish, you were in good shape. But if you were Christian... Well, there was no one to take care of you. Because to the Romans, you were this upstart religion that did not ally with Caesar, but to this crucified Christ named Jesus. And if you were a Jew, you didn't help the Christians because after all, they have, in your mind, abandoned the true faith. And so the Christians need help. And so Paul, he gets this great idea. He goes, you know what would be amazing? is to meet a physical need that will have spiritual implications. Because you understand that every time you meet a physical need as a Christ follower, you have the opportunity to link it with a spiritual reality. And the spiritual reality that Paul wants to link to the Christians in Corinth and in Macedonia and Achaia and around Asia Minor is simply this. You may be Gentile and they may be Jewish, but we are all a part of the same family. And God does not have favorites in his family. Can I get an amen? How many of you are glad that God does not have favorites in his family? No, let me correct that. I'm sorry. Did you know that you're all his favorite? In fact, Christ would have died but for one of you. You are God's favorites. God loves you. I don't think we say this nearly enough. You need to understand, your sin breaks God's heart, but God's love is greater than your sin. He loves you. And Paul has this great idea that we will see these Gentile Christians demonstrating the love of God for the family of God by caring and sharing with people who do not have their same racial or ethnic background, but because of Jesus, they're part of the same family. And he begins to say, hey, Corinthians, I want you to do just like this other church to your north in Macedonia. They've been collecting and collecting. I want you to partner with us in this beautiful act of giving. And he's going to show us, I think, at least five things, five principles that I just want to run through very quickly here about what generous Christians know. Because let let me be real clear here. You do not have to be generous to be a Christ follower. Your salvation is not dependent on your generosity. But the depth of your joy, of your relationships with others, of your experience of what it means to know God and be like God, that is absolutely tied to your pocketbook. In fact, real quick, before we get started, I just want to invite you all, go ahead and take out your wallet uh, or, or your, your, um, your purse. Go ahead. I'm going to stand here awkwardly until you do it, okay? Go ahead and grab it. Hold it. 
And if you want to, during the course of our time, you are welcome to put it in your lap. Feel free to stroke your wallet if you're getting a little nervous. If you need to do the little thing from Gollum, Lord of the Rings, my precious, whatever it is, you do that. You just, you know, you soothe yourself with this, but hold on to it. But I want you to see some things that Paul shows us, because here's the reality. There is a cost. There is a cost to not giving. And it's not that God wants your money or needs your money. It's that you will become a smaller person the more you hold on with white knuckled fervor the things that you wrongly think are yours. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get into this. Let me show you five things. Number one, that generous people know. Here's the first one. Generous Christians know that giving is the secret to spiritual growth. Generous Christians know that giving is the secret to spiritual growth. Did you notice this phrase, this little statement here in verse 7? Notice he says, but just as you excel in everything. By the way, have you ever known someone who excels in almost like everything? They just sort of make you sick. I mean, in a, you know, you, God bless them kind of way, but you know, really. My brother-in-law is one of those guys. He is freakishly gifted. He can play the guitar with the best of them. Um, he, he's like one of those naturally skinny people where like if he, if he just goes, does this once, it's like, ding, muscles everywhere. Um, he is very comfortable with everyone he's ever met. He's brilliant. He never studied in school. And yet he's like, you know, it's like, oh, we'll give him a 6.0. What's that? We don't know. But for him, we will give him a 6.0 average. He's brilliant. He's comfortable. He's just one of these guys. He excels in everything. Paul is saying, Corinthians, you're that kind of crew. You excel in everything. Look at this. In your faith, meaning you have a strong belief in God. By the way, many of you in this room excel in the same way that the Corinthians excel. And I'm so proud of you. You excel in your faith. You strongly believe in God, in your speech. Now, the word there is actually the word logos. It's the word that we get, this idea of logic, knowledge. It's actually best understood here as when talking about speech, not simply the words you say, but the doctrine or the belief systems you have. You excel in knowing truth. And then in knowledge is the application of that truth. You, you don't just know the right things. You do them as well. In complete earnestness, meaning you're passionate, and in your love, this is the word agape, God love, meaning it's self-sacrificing, it's for the betterment of others, and your love for us, you are excelling in everything, so see to it that you also excel in the grace of giving. He's saying that you are growing and growing and growing, but there is one thing that if you do not choose to do, there is such a high cost, you will never be able to outgrow your giving. Your spiritual growth, meaning being like God, is tied to your giving. And again, the reason we're saying this is not because the church needs or wants your money. So, each week we give our children allowances. We didn't this week. Sorry, son, we'll get to it in a moment. We give our children their allowances every week. And each week we tell them to give a percentage of it to the church. Now, the question, do I tell my son and daughter to give a percentage to the church so that I can be paid by the church? Is that why I do that? No. 
Is it, is, is it because I want their money that I first give them money for them to give back a portion of it? No. It was mine to begin with. I am giving it and now calling our children to practice this, not for my good, but for theirs. You will never grow spiritually beyond your giving. Here's the second thing that generous people know. Generous people also know that giving is a response. It's not a requirement. It is a response. It's not a requirement. You say, where do you get that from? Well, I get it from these first four verses. Notice what he says. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian church. The grace that God has given. This word grace is the word charis. Everybody, let's say charis on the count of three. One, two, three, charis. Charis can be translated grace, but it can also be translated gift. You could read this passage as we want you to know about the gift that God has given that the response they are about to give of generosity is not because they have to, but because they have received a gift from God and they go, wow, how can I do anything but give? It is a response. It is not a requirement. In fact, Paul later is going to say, look, I'm not commanding you to do this because God loves a cheerful giver. Years ago, some friends of ours told a story uh, about a trip they were given by one of their relatives. My friend Neil and Sandra Chaffin are related to a a lady that you may have heard of. Her name is Dolly Parton. How many of you have ever been to uh, Dollywood or, or, or any? Okay. Well, Dolly Parton is one of their relatives, and as a gift, she paid for this all-inclusive trip to the beach. And it had everything, great place to stay, great food to eat, great water to go play in. And they were talking about this afterwards. They said, you know, they would be out there just having fun in the ocean with the sun and and, and just loving the time. And, And they found themselves going, oh, man, isn't Dolly good? Dolly is so sweet. Praise Dolly. Dolly's awesome. I love Dolly. And then it hit them. As they were thinking about how much they appreciated Dolly, it's like, well, we should do something for Dolly. What should we give Dolly? After all, she has everything. She has her own theme park named after you. What do you get her? We don't know, but we want to do something. And then it hit them. Wait a minute. Generosity is a response It is not a requirement. When you and I go, praise God, not for a week at the beach, but eternal life in Jesus, that my sins don't count against me, that your sins don't count against you, that Jesus took them on himself, took them off you, that you get to be in the family of God. We go, praise God. What do we do now? We can't outgive God, but we will respond to God, generous people know that generosity is a response. It's not a requirement. And you will know it is a barometer or a measurement of how much you acknowledge the goodness of God when you see how much you give. That it is a response, not a requirement. Let me give you another one real quick here. 
We're going to jump ahead here. All right, here we go. Number three, generous Christians have learned to separate their needs from their wants. Generous Christians have learned to separate their needs from their wants. Quick question. How many of you have found yourself sometime over the past month saying, oh, I need blank? Anyone in this room? I have so many wants, but very few needs. Generous Christians have been able to discern between their needs and their wants. I had an email, this has been a couple months ago, but I got an email saying that I have already been pre-approved. I know, this is going to be incredible. I have already been pre-approved to get all of my student debt paid for. They don't even know me, but they like me so much, and they've, they've evidently talked to some of my friends, or maybe my mom, she's here today, hey. And, you know, maybe they were like, you know, is he a good boy? And they said yes, and so they like me so much that they have decided they're going to pre-approve paying off all my student debt for me. And I thought, man, this is such great news, especially since I didn't know that I had any student debt to pay off. But, but wow, that's great that they're willing to do this. And that means that I will have more money to get all the things that I need. Now that they're going to take care of this little petty thing over here, here's the reality. Christians have discerned the difference between needs and wants. I'll tell you about another email I got. This was some time ago, but I was told that if I wanted to, for a very small amount, I could upgrade to the newest iPhone. I was like, wow. And do you, do you know what I thought in that moment? I thought... Before that email, I thought the iPhone I had was just fine. But after that email, I realized no one in my position could be caught dead with this old piece of junk. I need an iPhone. I need the latest. I, some of you, just, just for those who may be my age or younger, hint, you do not need a smartphone. This phone does a lot, does everything I need and a lot of things I don't want it to do. And a handful of things, I don't even know how it does it. In fact, I'm, I'll give it to Stephen. I'll say, fix this. And he'll go, yes, sir. That'll be 10 bucks. And then I go, well, you can sleep outside. And that's how that works. But, but here's the reality. We did just fine for many, many years before we ever had cell phones. We don't need it, do we? Our problem is we have gotten the wrong things in the wrong column. We've moved the needs out and the wants in. But generous Christians have made margin for giving because they have seen the difference between their needs and their wants. Let me give you a couple more things here real quickly. Number four, generous Christians know that giving begins with what we have, not with what we don't. Generous Christians know that giving begins with what we have, not with what we don't. I want you to see this real quick. This is verse 11 and 12. Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, listen, you give, notice this phrase, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. In other words... Many Christians say, I will become generous when I have enough. 
But did you know, and we've seen this over and over and over again, that those with the highest level of income often are the smallest percentage givers. It's been interesting over the past few weeks as so many have been putting their hat in the ring for the presidential nominee that their tax records, their giving records, these different things have been coming out and it has simply confirmed what stats have been telling us for so long that the more you have, often the less you give. And yet we think that if I just have a little more, then I can begin to be generous. Notice he says, everyone can give something according to what they have, not because the church needs it, not because God is going, oh no, how am I going to pay the heavenly rent without their money? but because it's where you begin to walk in step with your Savior. And let me give you the fifth and final one real quick. Our time is out here. I want you to see this number as we come into it first. $21.96. $21.96. In 2008, um, my wife and I were in Houston, Texas, I was serving there as the community life minister at the First Colony Church of Christ. Just a wonderful, sweet church. So, so very much like this church here. But in 2008, there was this little thing called Hurricane Ike that decided to come knock on our door. And I remember my wife and I decided not to leave town for that one. I'd already run away for a couple other hurricanes that had come through while we were there. And so we decided to stay. And I'll tell you, uh, if you've ever s- tried to sleep through a hurricane... It's an adventure. But the devastation through Houston was pretty bad, and we lost power all over the city. There was millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of damage. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of homes were lost in the nearby area of Galveston. And, and as we began to sort of figure out what to do and, and sort of to pick up the pieces to begin the reclaiming and fixing, we received a letter in the mail from the churches that we sponsored in Uganda, Africa. These churches were much, much smaller, and they had pooled their resources, and together they gave the First Colony Church of Christ, which, by the way, at that point was ranked number three in the most desirable places to live in the United States. But they pooled their money, And they gave $21.96. And and they gave a note that said this. It's not much money, but we had to show you how we love you, how we feel about you, and that we are with you. This story was picked up in the Houston Chronicle newspaper, and in it, The senior minister at First Colony, Ronnie Norman, said it was the most beautiful and generous gift the First Colony Church had ever received. And then the elders did something that I thought was just just beautiful. They said, you know, this is such a beautiful gift. I wonder, maybe, maybe this is a seed gift. This is the beginning of something. Maybe like the Macedonian church. Maybe like this other group that is not maybe as well off, but based on their extravagant generosity. God wants to do something in our midst. And 
So they laid before the church, they said, these $21.96. We're going to do a, a fundraiser. Now, mind you, these are people who've many had damage to their homes or lost homes. And they said, here's what we're going to do on such and such date. We're simply going to come and we're going to invite everyone to give $21.96 or a multiple of it. And it's not going to stay in-house. It's going to go out to others who need help. And by the grace of God, there were over $40,000 given because this one little Macedonian-like church said, boy, this is a lot more than we usually give in an entire month. But we need you to know that we love you and we are with you. Generous Christians know that we begin with what we have, not with what we don't. And it leads really to this fifth and final one right here. If you've not heard anything else, I want you just to perk up for two minutes. Here it is. Generous Christians know that they can trust God. This is all about trust, isn't it? In fact, let's just do a little, little, little test right here, a little um, exercise. Go ahead and grab that wallet. You got your wallet still, your purse. Go ahead and hold it up for a second. You don't have to hold it up high. Just make sure you got it. Here's what I want you to do. Would you just... Would you take that wallet, would you take that, and would you hand it to the person to your right or left? Just go ahead and swap with them. Go ahead, just give it to someone. And if you are sitting next to your spouse, go one more over. Go ahead, really make this an awkward morning. Some of you are going, I'm never coming back to this church. Now, I'm going to make this point fast because I don't want you to leave quickly with someone's wallet, okay? Here's the point. How nervous are you right now? Because someone else has your money. Now go ahead, swap back, give it back to the person who gave it to you originally. You know, I'm more nervous giving my money to someone else if I don't trust them with it than someone that I trust entirely with everything I've got. I want to close with one verse, and this is the one that everything leans on. In fact, if you were to say, what's the central text? Here it is. This is verse 9. I want you to see this, church, because when God calls us to give, he's not doing it because he wants your stuff. It's because he is trying to release you from the grip of greed, from the thing that will never allow you to grow to be more like him. And here's the question. Do you trust God or not? Don't worry. We're not taking up a second offering this morning. This is for you to just consider today, to ponder with your Savior. But here is what he says in verse 9. For you know, you know, you know the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was, say this word with me, rich. Yet for your sakes he became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. How much does God have to give? How much does the one who owns everything have to give to go from rich to poor? See, sometimes we think, I'll just give a little bit because our thinking is, I don't know if I'll have enough. But notice the standard, the standard is 
Jesus Christ, God himself, saying, I have everything. What do I have to give to go from everything to poverty? He has to give it all. And who does he give it to, church? He gave it to you, to me. If God who created the universe, who owns the galaxies, whose voice covers all things, who is encircled in heaven by angelic beings praising his name, if that God says, I will give everything for Josh Diggs, I think I can trust him with what little I have. And here's the beautiful thing. If you're scared that God simply wants to take from you, I invite you to go read chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians later this week. Here's what you're going to find. He's going to say, He will supply all of your needs. Some of us have never experienced the spiritual growth. Some of us have never found the freedom because we have never trusted God enough to get to a point where He has to provide. But generous people, generous Christians have learned that no matter what they have, they can trust God because he entrusted all of himself to give to us.